0: and one small step for me. One science for Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everyone. You know, we put every bit as much research effort into these 10-minute mysteries as we do our full-size Sunday episodes. We call them 10-minute mysteries because we don't add an armchair detective or a musical guest, but... Clearly, many of them last longer than 10 minutes, and I'm guessing this one is going to go a bit long as well. Tonight's story is about an Ohio woman who seemed to be living the American dream, a farm girl who became a multi-million dollar heiress. But it's a dream that will end in a nightmare, a tale of con artists, show horse racketeers, a greedy handyman, and murder. Our subject tonight is Helen Voorhees, a girl born on a small farm in Unionport, Ohio in 1911. That's just west of Steubenville, near the eastern edge of the state. Helen and her brother Charles grew up in an area where their family had lived for nine generations. Her father, Walter, worked in the coal fields. Her mom, Daisy, was a traditional homemaker. Her brother, Charles, became a car inspector for the railroad. Helen's destiny would take her far from this humble life. She was a natural, auburn-haired beauty with large brown eyes. She married her high school sweetheart in 1928, a good-looking boy with a pension for the ladies. It didn't last. They were divorced by the time she was 21. Helen supported herself with a variety of jobs she found dull and monotonous, taking tickets for a bus company, Keeping books at a pottery factory. She was 39 when she decided life must have more to offer. She left Ohio and moved to Florida in 1950, where she landed a job as a receptionist at a Palm Beach country club. One night, she sees one of the country club's members having a fight with his wife. The wife storms off in disgust, but the man remained behind. And before the night ended, Helen found herself having drinks with him and hearing about his life. His name was Frank Brock. Frank grew up in a poor Chicago neighborhood, and he was 14 when he joined his brother and father into opening a sweet shop in Chicago. They won a claim for the caramel, which was baked as opposed to the standard of boiling in those days. Their candy was so distinctive and popular that they were able to parlay it into a candy empire. Steve, I'm sure you've heard of Brock's Candies. I have. Yeah, our Frank is that Brock. Oh, wow. Within a year of meeting Helen, Frank divorced the wife he had been fighting with that night at the country club and made Helen his third bride. He was 21 years her senior, but she was 40, and by all accounts, it was a genuine romance. Frank doted on his wife. In addition to a penthouse in Florida, they had a second home in Ritzy, Glenview, Illinois, a Chicago suburb that was near the candy factories. And Frank built for Helen a house along the Tappan Reservoir in Ohio, and nearby houses for her parents and her brother Charles. In those early years, the Brocks would spend four months a year living in Harrison County. Frank died in 1970 at the age of 80, and Helen buried him in Unionport, Ohio, next to her parents. Helen went on with her life, split between Ohio, Chicago, and Fort Lauderdale, where she had established circles of friends, activities, and interests. She loved animals. She used part of her fortune to found the Helen Brock Foundation, which was focused on animal welfare. So far, so good. That will change in 1977. Our mystery begins on February 17 that year, when Helen was in Rochester, Minnesota. She had just turned 65 and wanted a full physical, so she checked herself into the Mayo Clinic there for a week of tests, after which her doctors gave her a clean bill of health, told her to lose 20 pounds, and to get some sun and exercise. That part would be easy. She had plans to fly to Chicago to wind up a few things there before heading to a new home she had just purchased in Florida, where the fun of outfitting the place would keep her entertained. Helen checked herself out of her hotel in Rochester and was destined for the airport with a Northwest Orient plane ticket in her hand. But first, she made a brief stop at a gift shop near the clinic. She picked out an alabaster soap dish, a powder box, and a handful of towels, paid by credit card and asked that the purchases be shipped to that new home in Florida. While the clerk was boxing everything up, Helen mentioned something about being in a hurry because her houseman was waiting. It was 10 a.m. and it was the last time police believe Helen was seen alive by someone other than her killer. The commercial airliner she was supposed to take home said she didn't board the plane. Police found it very odd that that houseman, John Matlick, a full-time handyman and chauffeur who had been in charge of caring for the Illinois house for the past 20 years, told authorities because he collected her at Chicago's O'Hare Airport. Matlick said Helen spent four days in her suburban Chicago home, once going out to dinner with people he could not identify, and that he dropped her off at O'Hare for a flight to Florida on February 21. None of this was adding up. And Matlick quickly became a person of interest in the case. Not only was there no record of her boarding that flight from Minnesota to Chicago, they could find no ticket in her name from Chicago to Florida. It didn't help Matlock's case that he had given people conflicting stories. A friend of Helen's told authorities she had called the house during the four days Helen was supposed to be in Chicago, and that Matlock told her that Mrs. Brock had already left for Florida. Adding to the mystery... Brock's accountant told police that he had determined signatures on about $13,000 worth of checks weren't in Brock's handwriting. Was Matlick forging checks? And now I'm not saying this next thing amounted to anything, but in one creepy little revelation, police traced a call made from Helen's Chicago house after her disappearance and learned it was to a local department store where Matlick had purchased a meat grinder. People also thought it suspicious that Matlick didn't report her absence for two weeks. At that time, Matlick tried to file a missing persons report. Police wouldn't accept it from anyone other than a family member, so Matlick called Charles Voorhees in Ohio and asked him to come to Illinois to see police about his sister. But by then, the trail was stone cold. Matlick always angrily denied having any knowledge of what happened to Helen. He died in a Pennsylvania nursing home in 2011 at the age of 79. But many authorities, and Helen's brother Charles, have often said he was suspect number one. Many others, however, had a different suspect in mind, because Matlick wasn't the only person taking advantage of the wealthy widow. Helen's love of animals included a lifelong dream of owning horses, and that's what brought her into the circle of Chicago stable owner Richard Bailey. She first met Richard Bailey in 1973. By then, he was already a very experienced con man with a very specific type. He preyed on wealthy older women, recently widowed or divorced, who had an interest in but little knowledge of the horse business. Helen Brock checked off all those categories. Bailey and Brock didn't have a romantic relationship, but friends of Helen's say he had definitely charmed her. The trust that was built allowed Bailey to sell Helen several horses between 1975 and 1977. The horses were reportedly show horses that just needed a little training. In truth, they were only worth a quarter of the price she had paid for them. In one case, she gave Bailey almost $100,000 for three horses that an appraiser later valued to be worth 20000 After speaking to that appraiser, Helen began to figure this one all out. Before her trip to the Mayo Clinic, she confided in a friend, a man who was designing a half-million-dollar granite and marble tomb for the family plot back in Unionport. She said she thought she had been cheated in a horse deal and planned to visit the Illinois Attorney General's office as soon as she got back from that trip to the Mayo Clinic, the trip where she ultimately vanished. Authorities looked into this angle early, but it wasn't until they reopened Brock's disappearance in 1989 that they found enough evidence to charge Richard Bailey. Their charge of murder against him didn't stick, there just wasn't enough evidence, but a jury did find him guilty of defrauding her. The judge in that case threw the book at him and gave him a life sentence, taking the extraordinary step of making it clear that the sentence reflected his belief that Bailey was involved in Brock's death. Bailey wasn't the only man to go down during that investigation into horse swindling. After the case was fully unraveled, nearly 40 people in the horse industry would be convicted of various dealings, including killing perfectly healthy horses, In order to collect the insurance money. The investigation also revealed yet another possible suspect in Helen Brock's disappearance. Silas Jane, another stable owner in Richard Bailey's circle, ended up in prison for conspiracy to kill his brother. And during that time in prison, his cellmate was a man named Maurice Ferguson, who was in prison for a Chicago armed robbery. Maurice told authorities that in 1979, when he was released from prison, Silas Jane paid him to remove a woman's remains from a stable in Morton Grove, Illinois, and rebury them somewhere in Minnesota. Maurice said he found a location near Minneapolis because he had a family living near there. But Maurice kept leading police on wild goose chases, the first fruitless search was in a forest preserve. The second one was near a riding stable. On a third trip with police, Ferguson said he was ready to take them to the real place because Silas Jane had died the previous year and he was no longer afraid of them. But even this third trip to a farm field yielded nothing. There was another strange incident that probably has nothing to do with this case, but it still fits that things-that-make-you-go-hmm category. More than a year after Brock's disappearance, the nude body of an elderly woman was discovered in a wooded park on Chicago's south side. Authorities suspected it might be Brock, but the medical examiner said it couldn't be. This victim wore dentures, and Helen did not. And so the body was buried in a potter's field. The weird thing is, in 1990, authorities exhumed the body for some reason. They wanted another look. And when they opened the casket, they found that the head had been removed so that dental work could never be rechecked. Now, this was early in the technology of DNA, and I found no report that authorities ever exhumed her again to try using DNA technology. Helen Brock was declared legally dead in May of 1984 In trying to decide what date to fix her death as, a probate judge ruled that he didn't believe Matlick's story that Helen had ever made it back to Chicago and said he thought she likely died in Minnesota soon after visiting that gift shop. So her death date was set as February 17, 1977. Among other things, the judge said Matlick's insistence that she had gone to dinner during her brief four-day stop to her Chicago home was certainly a lie. I mean, her disappearance was national news, and yet no one came forward to say they had seen her or had dinner with her in that time. Helen's estate was finally allowed to be settled. It was worth $30 million then. That's about $72 million today. She left most of her money to the Helen Brock Foundation for Animal Welfare. She left some money to her brother Charles and she left a $50,000 trust to that houseman, John Matlick. Incensed that Matlick might benefit from her death when he might also have been her killer, Helen's estate filed a lawsuit against Matlick, alleging he had forged checks and stolen cash. Matlick agreed to give up his $50,000 trust in exchange for the lawsuit being dropped. So here's where we stand, Richard Bailey, the horse stable owner, was never convicted of anything in regards to Helen Brock's disappearance. Though a judge admitted he made a fraud case against the stable owner harsher out of the belief that he did kill Brock. And the houseman Matlick, he was never convicted of anything in regards to Helen Brock's disappearance. Though a judge admitted he set her official death date on the belief that Matlick did kill Brock. The truth is, we don't know where she died or when she died. And without knowing her killer is, we don't even know what the motive was. In Unionport, Ohio, under that half-million-dollar cemetery memorial, lie individual stones for Helen's husband, Frank Brock, her parents, and even two of her dogs, Candy and Sugar. There's another stone there with Helen's name, birth, and death date the tomb below the stone is still empty. Alright, well that's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-sized Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week, and may all of your mysteries have happy endings.